civilization is being sacrificed for the opportunity of a very small number of people. We urgently need financial, political and social innovations that enable us to overcome this structural dependency on growth. We need to change the system. This isn't cleaning up the beaches in the case of plastic a little bit faster. That's vital, that has to be done. But you need to stem the flow. GoSimon explores sustainable change and the women inspiring it. Who are they? What made them who they are? How do they read the world they live in? Our guests share their story, roots, passions and hopes for the future. They tell us more about the alternatives and strategies they developed to tackle climate change. Our Simon today is Cleanne Gabriel. With Cleanne, we talked about Trinidad, geography, degrowth, leatherback turtles, capitalism addiction, leapfrogging and successful non-growing companies. Hi, Cleanne. Hi, thanks for having me. Cleanne, you are a lecturer at the University of Queensland and the Business School's Director for the United Nations Principles for Responsible Management Education. Your research focuses on the areas of sustainable development and post-growth futures, renewable energy enterprise and business models for sustainability. You've worked on projects and assignments funded by organizations such as Australian Aid, the European Union and New Zealand's Ministry of Business, Innovation and Employment. You also designed and delivered an energy baseline study for the city of Dunedin in New Zealand and provided policy advice on the city's energy plan. You were born also in Trinidad and you lived in Japan, in Germany, in New Zealand, and you are now living in Brisbane, uh, Australia. Where is your home base? This is my home base. Uh, Brisbane is my home at the moment. I am, as you said, from Trinidad and Tobago and um, a big part of who I am today, even now here in Brisbane, is still connected to Trinidad and Tobago, but this is home. And how was it to grow in uh, Trinidad and what kind of childhood did you have? In most ways, I think I had a typical fun Trinidadian um, childhood in, in, in most ways. Um, I um, Playing with the neighbor's children on the streets, I actually kind of miss those days and my son doesn't have the benefit of that these days of I'm um, just being able to play um, carefree in the streets and uh, as I think everyone would assume it's a you know an island country in the Caribbean so there are a lot of advantages that come with that lifestyle as well Look, but I won't gloss over the fact that I have had my challenges um, growing up in Trinidad and Tobago I grew up as part of a, a single parent or what we call a single parent family so I was raised mostly by my mother along with three other siblings so there are four of us and as you can imagine that was quite tough uh, so it made things it made life in general quite difficult but I managed. Yeah, I'm here today. So so in general, I think there there are some very good things, but I had my challenges as, as well. How were your parents talking to you? How were they considering you as a child? What kind of relationship did you have with them? My memories and image of my, my mother in particular, having grown up with her, is one of a very driven woman. She worked very hard and she was what we would call, I guess, a, a working mother, a career mother. I'm not sure I'm quite comfortable with that term, but and that was what I saw. And she would do anything to for us and for our future. And she was so focused and invested in our future. And so everything that she did, her interactions with me and my siblings, even if we didn't know it at the time as children, I think those those interactions, the way she spoke to us, were always encouraging. I think my mother was, has always been and continues to be my biggest fan, if that you know even means something. So she was extremely encouraging, extremely supportive, made many sacrifices. 
were you free to choose the pathway you wanted to choose with school and yes. career? Yes, I felt I was quite free to do that. There were a few stages, I think, where I wanted to branch out into something else other than. So I, I started with science, environmental science, and for a while, for a time, I considered um, studying languages instead because I quite loved foreign languages. And and it actually took my mother's push to remind me, well, this is your passion. You know, you like this environment and manage environmental sustainability. I was having a difficult time at that moment, and it took her sort of reminding me that even. Even though it's difficult now, I know that this is still what you love to do. It's still what you're good at, so don't give up on it. Um, and you can still pursue languages, which I have done, actually, as, as, as part of just life and living in different countries. How did this interest and passion for uh, environmental science appear to you? So I, I kind of, you know, it's really hard to think about this to, to, to pinpoint one particular time or turning point um, where this interest in environmental issues became apparent to me. But I do, I can remember a few key influencing people and factors. So I remember, for example, growing up, I really loved watching documentaries. My siblings and I would spend quite a long time watching nature documentaries. We'd learn about different animals. I remember as a child as well, uh, my sister and I in particular getting caught up in the campaign to save the manatee. So I don't know if you know that the manatee, I think is similar to what Australians call a dugong here. They live in um, sort of in, ma in mangrove forests in Trinidad and Tobago. And so we were caught up in that campaign to save the manatee. I remember as well being caught in the also the campaign to save the leatherback turtle, which is also an endangered species of, of sea turtle that nests in Trinidad and Tobago. So those are some events that I can I remember quite distinctly that had um, an, a, quite a big impact on me. In terms of what I've studied and my work, I, I really have to, to say I had probably one of the best geography teachers ever. I remember in school, I was always interested in geography and environmental management. Um, and that's, I think, in large part to Mrs. Bradshaw, who I've just said her name. Well, now I have to share this podcast with her. <laughs> Um, but she um, really ignited this passion in me for the environment and for our impact on the natural environment and, and planet Earth. After your Master of Environmental Science, you started a PhD with a focus on renewable energy technologies. How has your interest in post-growth emerged? So I think I was actually interested in post-growth long before I knew the word for it. Uh, for a long time, I was doing environmental sustainability. I was studying it in different ways. I studied environmental policy, environmental science, environmental engineering. And at a certain point, I thought, okay, but something's missing. I, and I, I realized that we needed to get business people involved. And I thought, well, these scientists aren't communicating this challenge, this problem, or the solutions for that matter, in a manner that I think will get the business people to listen. So I went ahead and I did this PhD in business. But while I was doing this PhD in business, I realized actually it isn't much better here either. And I actually realized that there aren't many people in business who were talking about the kind of environmental sustainability issues I was interested in. In particular, I think I always had in the back of my mind this nagging question, well, why is it that businesses are always talking about profits, making more and more profits without acknowledging that they can't actually have those profits without the natural environment, without the resources that make those profits. So for a lot of years, I had this in the back of my mind. And I think it was about two or three years ago when 
I started reading the, the degrowth vocabulary. I realized this is it. This is the, the word I've been looking for to describe what I'm trying. Well, I guess it, it is an emotion, what I was feeling and what I was passionate about, that the bottom line is not really profits. There is a natural environment bottom line that we are neglecting. Could you tell us a bit more about the concept of post-growth for those who don't know? So post-growth is a critique. Really, it is a, a, fundam a critique of our fundamental assumption that we need economic growth to be successful, to thrive as a society. And as part of that critique comes a proposal, a proposition from people like me and other researchers around the world. And the, that proposal is that we can still thrive We can still live happy, prosperous, good lives, even without economic growth. And the reason for that critique and the reason for our proposal is that historically, the science and the research shows that the more economic growth we have, the more environmental destruction we have, and the greater societal inequity we have as well. And it's time to start decoupling economic growth from those environmental and social ills. In the preparation of our interview, you've mentioned a few times that sometimes in certain contexts, you happen to censor yourself a bit and not mention the term degrowth. Why do you feel the need to censor yourself? I'm working in a business school, yes. <laughs> and what is business about? making profits. So here I am in a business school doing research that says, well, can we think about something else besides profits? Really, profit should not be the main focus. That is not the bottom line. It is not the fundamental indicator, I think, of well-being in general. So within that context in a business school, I find myself doing this, I guess, what, what some would call radical research that says, actually, let's think about the environment first. Primary thing, the environment. Then let's think about society and well-being or before we think about money. And so I found that often those ideas were met with resistance. I found that I started to censor myself. So degrowth tends to be a more radical word, a radical approach. Um, whereas post-growth, people are more willing to engage in a conversation. Something about that D suggests anti-growth or no growth. And, 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 and people just automatically close their minds. So I found I was in my daily conversations, in my writing and in discussions at business schools, I was starting to censor myself. And I try sometimes use that more palatable phrase, post-growth. In recent times, however... I'm not sure what triggered it, but I've decided I don't care anymore. <laughs> uh, and in recent times, I've, I've, I've stopped censoring. And I've realized that in many of the same forums, I started just using that term degrowth. And I started really just saying what I mean. I stopped putting all the, the fluff around it and the caveats. And I started saying, no, there's no way to we can have continuous growth, continuous profits if we destroy the environment on a dead planet. When I, and I realized the more I spoke that truth, actually, it was even better for, for my research career because I, I think that truth speaks for itself. And I think it's something that many people can, can agree with and, and that resonates with many as well. In one of your latest articles published in the Entrepreneur magazine, you write, 
Business needs to take a more aggressive and proactive stance to pay down ecological debt, as all indications point to the cusp of ecological crisis. When there are no more resources to mine or harvest, no amount of financial bailout will help business or our global market economy. And that is the harsh bottom line. Could you please tell us a bit more about your views on the role businesses uh, can slash have to play in the climate change crisis we are facing? And does business fundamentally fit in this change of paradigm? Business has to find a way to fit. It's going to be quite difficult. What we're talking about here is not something... I'm sure it'll happen incrementally, but the end result, whatever that is and whenever that will be, will be a fundamental shift in in paradigm, a shift in in, in economic structures. And businesses as economic agents have such an important role to play in realizing that future. They have to be an important part of that. One of the important distinctions to be made, and of course I I don't have definitive answers just yet, and that's because this is part of my current research. I'm now starting to think about the role of business for um, post-growth. But I think it's possible we may need to separate out business as a function from business as corporate institution, you know, or economic agent. Because business as corporate institution, as the, the corporation, as an economic agent, is about making profits, right? We need more. We need to take more from the environment, take more from disadvantaged communities to produce more so people can consume more. I think that is the sort of the underlying uh, model of the corporation. There is perhaps, and I, I say this, I'm still thinking this through, but there's perhaps um, the potential for us to learn or to borrow a few ideas from business, not as corporate institution, but business as a function. Even non-corporate organizations perform some form of business as a function in terms of, you know, their exchanges that are happening every day and interactions. What we might learn is, or what we might look at is how do certain enterprises that are working towards better outcomes for, say, disadvantaged communities or the natural environment, what is the nature of those exchanges that are happening within those types of organizations. So that, that that just that function of creating value, of sharing value, there might be something that we can learn there, but it comes down again to what exactly is value, what we value, what we mean by value. And even that discussion of value can also lead us down a dangerous path, right? Because people, uh, many people critique these post-growth concepts by saying that capitalism will solve it. One day, some how we'll find a way using the same system that we're used to and we've always had we'll find a way to create more environmental value or create more social value but surely the system that created these problems is incapable of solving it itself so i'm wary that we could end up going down that 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 track when we start talking about business as a function as a creator of value but I, i do see that there is some hope and maybe perhaps some lessons that we could learn from business as a function for post-growth. To lots of commentators, uh, tweaking one's lifestyle is all that is needed. Buy an electric vehicle, use a bicycle, don't take a plane on your vacation, buy reusable bags, choose organic only, go vegan. While there's nothing wrong with doing these things in general, Degrowthers also say that they must be understood as individual choices that are based on privilege and that 
They have little impact in addressing urgent crisis our biosphere is facing right now. This type of discourse amongst the growthers can lead to say, well, then what's the point of me doing any efforts then? What do you respond to this type of pushback? Well, we need everybody. We're all part of the system. The system is governed by the few, but it's the many that put those few there. There's evidence already existing that individuals can make a difference. Individuals can start wide-ranging international conversations. And here I'm speaking about people like Greta Thunberg. Individuals can make a difference and we need everybody to do little things every day that little changes to their own lifestyles. I think if we really want that systemic shift, we need the political will. I think it's important that our politicians remember that uh, they are there to serve. It's important that we as individuals, as people in our households and societies, remind them of at this greater purpose, their roles within within societies and within government. Talking about politics, I read a tribute uh, recently from uh, Yves Cochet, who is a former French environmental minister mm -hmm. and he's a president of the Momentum Institute. It's an institute looking at degrowth and how to implement it. Mm -hmm. And he says, the extremists are to be found in those that stand with mainstream thinking, which might as well be called religion, based on the belief that technological innovation in conjunction with a return to economic growth will solve our problems. How do you feel we can put forward and implement a rapid degrowth project now that we seem to run out of time? This is all politics. At this moment, I cannot see a way that this will happen quickly without political will. Don't you think that maybe activism yes, can play a role? We are yes. seeing more and more people, you know, going Absolutely. in the street, going into protests. Do you feel this has a, it's useful? It's extremely useful. It's necessary. And I think that the activism is what is going to hopefully sway the pe swing the pendulum a little bit in terms of political will in favor of degrowth. Activism is extremely important and we need activists across civil society, across business, across academia, if we are to have it as soon as possible because, you know, time is not on our side. Some detractors of Greta Thunberg sometimes describe her as a puppet for green capitalism. According to you, is there a form of capitalism, green, right, left, center, I, that can solve the problem we face no, today? No. I, I don't see a form of capitalism that can be green. This is um, also, you know, this concept of green growth, that we can have it all. We can have both economic growth and a thriving natural environment. We are yet to see that happen. And for all of our efforts so far, many have tried. It has not worked. We can't have it all. We, 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 we probably do need some growth in some areas, but on aggregate, Our economies, c continuous, unbridled economic growth is incompatible with environmental ecosystem health. I was browsing your Twitter feed while yes. preparing this interview, and you retweeted a quote from Jérôme Rousse, who is a political economist at the <laughs> London School of Economics, uh, studying the history of capitalism. And he has this quote, it is easier to imagine the end of the world than to imagine the end of capitalism, yes. <laughs> with the illustration that I loved, of a photo of two women Uh, hardly able to walk in a flooded street with giant Louis Vuitton bags. Yes. So it was excellent. Why do you think it is so hard for a majority of us to conceptualize a word without capitalism? Addiction. 
some research that suggests that we might think of the difficulty we have in letting go of 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 capitalism the difficulty we have in truly substantially addressing environmental issues there's some research that suggests that we might find some parallels from addiction science the psychology on addiction says that when we are addicted to something it's very very difficult for us to get out of it because it's an addiction this is something we feel we need it makes us feel better in the short term consumption and capitalism and all those things it feels good in the short term for us but what what the research suggests is that we sort of need to switch to a more positive framing the end of the world is in pictures everywhere we've seen the documentaries this these apocalyptic images of environment catastrophic environmental change so we we can see what that looks like but we're so addicted and used to capitalism it's really difficult to imagine what a world without it would look like. Another pushback to the degrowthers' discourse is that collapse can be and is a fear from the privileges only. And the question is about, you know, the people in poverty have little or no concept of climate change because they are busy just survive. So how do we reach the parts of society like this? There will be no society, poor society, rich society middle-class society there will be no society on a dead planet again to me that that's always that's the bottom line however i actually agree that environmentalism is a little bit of feels to me like a bit of a privilege for me even that i'm so active in this coming from an emerging market um country and you know facing a few challenges i'm um, growing up as well that even that i am involved in it so heavily is perhaps even a little bit of a, of a miracle i mean i i've myself seen people who are struggling to just survive um and i have experienced as well growing up the challenges of survival i mean we you need food to eat people you know need a roof over their heads and i've faced some of those challenges myself as well um i'm growing up so 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 i do agree that it takes a little bit of a privilege a bit of comfort having already achieved these basics there's food on the table you've got a roof over your head you've got a job and now there's it frees up that space it frees up that there's it, it frees up thinking space i guess to worry about the environment the challenge though those who make that argument that countries in the global south emerging markets can't even begin to think about these environmental issues because they're just barely surviving simply superimposing the development trajectories of of the so-called more developed countries today so they themselves did ha- did go through a period where um there was they did also worry about f- food to eat and you know shelter and and jobs and developed to a point i don't like that word development myself but really use it just to make sure we're all on the same page to a point where they worry about environmentalism but people who make that argument i think are imposing that same history onto the global south assuming that they too must 
go through that initial same path. However, this is why we speak about leapfrogging, which is the suggestion that some economies in the world will need to find their own alternative paths. So I agree. Poverty, healthcare, education, infant mortality, these are these are serious, um, dire, dire challenges we face in many parts of the world today. And they must be dealt with as well. In fact, many of these challenges, I think, are a result of capitalism. But it doesn't change the state of affairs today. And so I think what needs to happen is that those countries, speaking very broadly, need to find a way to deal with both without sort of preaching. I know, again, this is now me living in a global North country. Now I'm sort of projecting my ideas on the global South. But having come from the global South myself, countries like Trinidad and Tobago, where I am from, need to find a way to do both. I think it is no longer enough to just focus on the social um, problems. We don't have the time to do it. And that, to me, is the big challenge. In the, some uh, talks I've attended where you were speaking, mm-hmm. uh, you were mentioning uh, that one way to do that was to reform, in a way, uh, the traditional GDP and the mm-hmm. wealth measurements. Mm-hmm. We've seen recently with the new uh, prime minister in New Zealand that mm-hmm. it was an idea that was progressing. Yes. Do you feel this is one of the solution? Absolutely. We need new indicators. We need new ways to actually measure success and well-being beyond the GDP. So whether that's a happiness index, whether it's about trying to create well-being economies, which is what uh, Jacinda Ardern of New Zealand was trying to do, we absolutely need new ways to measure. That that filters down. It's not just at the economic level. I think businesses as well will need to start thinking about how they alternative ways of measuring their success. It's not just about growth and profits. Actually, there are examples. Um, I can't remember the name of it. I think in New Zealand of some green companies that aren't really trying to grow. They want to create a great product that's better for the environment. And as long as they have sort of a, a set market that's interested in the product, they are quite happy to say not expand into bigger markets. They're happy just to stay within their particular niches. Um, so the examples of what have, have been called uh, in the past, these SNCs, these successful non-growing companies. And I think that that's possibly another area of future research that will be quite interesting for, for business. How do you explain that despite the findings of scientists and the alarming reports that we read everywhere, some people keep on denying or simply just ignoring the climate crisis? Oh, I wish I brought it with me. It's such a good question. There's a whole science behind denial and I don't have it. I can't remember. There's a, you know, there's a entire framework, all the different reasons people deny it. Of course, part of it is they just don't have the facts, but I think many people are confronted with the facts. There are several things happening. On one hand, people interpret climate science to suit their reality or their version of reality, their truth, their desires. On the other hand, I think people are also filtering. They're sort of cherry picking the science. It's really hard. A well-designed research project is quite holistic and we must consider all the different factors. And I think oftentimes um, the denialists are sort of cherry picking. They're, They're taking little snippets here and there and blowing those. Those get amplified and blown out of proportion. Portion. The other thing that's happening, um, and I, I learned this recently, is that what happens is sometimes there's denial, quote unquote, science that relies on really small samples or contexts that on unrepresentative contexts, for example, and that research that 
perhaps doesn't really reflect reflect the broader reality often also gets blown out of proportion. So I think there's a lot of sort of misinformation and distortion. There's a lot of um, cognitive filtering that's happening as well that, but to be honest, it's, it's to be expected. It is, we are humans. The way we interpret what others call facts is it's affected by our own experiences, our own beliefs. In Sweden, there's a movement called a flight scam that consists in boycotting the plane. And the shame of taking the plane has already had an impact on the air traffic. It seems to say that we are not able to act otherwise than by the tax or the constraint and use guilt as a lever might be a solution. Do you think guilt can be a motor for people to actually change and adopt a degrowth model? One of the critiques we face and that Greta Thunberg even faced is that degrowth and environmental activism as a whole often gets pushed to the side and discounted as too emotional. But really, emotion is a really strong motivator. Guilt, sadness, fear, on a fundamental level, I think by any means necessary because we don't have time to sit and think too much about um how we go about how we get there we just need to get realize this shift by any means necessary as long as those means I think are just and and we we do exercise what we call this procedural justice as we sort of transition and move towards um, this post-growth future. There is some research actually on addiction and, and the research on addiction suggests that when someone is addicted to certain behaviors such as our consumption and production behaviors that have a negative impact on the natural environment that what might work best is not um, negative framing. So you don't say to someone who is um, addicted to drugs, this is bad for you, it's going to kill you, it's going to you know, rot your brain, have physical consequences, that what probably works better is some positive framing. So you might ask that person, what is your vision for the future? What is your definition of a good life? What, where do you see yourself in 10 years? And then if you start taking that person through the steps towards achieving that vision, that seems, that, or at least what the addiction um, science has says, it seems that, that that tends to be more more um, effective and that, that um, done by um, Bob Costanza and colleagues. So if we apply that same framing to climate science and this climate catastrophe, a lot of it really has been framed quite negatively. But I think there's, 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 there's hope in the fact that we have at least, there they could be problematic, but the Sustainable Development Goals, for example, the SDGs, are one of those examples of a positive vision of the future that we as a world have come together to create. They're not perfect. The goals are not perfect. But I think what we do need is a perhaps also a little more of that, that, that positive framing of that visioning of a well-being economy. I think a lot of that is what Jacinda Ardern, is what New Zealand is trying to do. It's what countries like Bhutan are trying to do in terms of this, this happiness um, index. Um, I think that some of that positive framing could also be, uh, might even be more effective than what we're currently seeing. Women tend to be marginalized and denied access to important uh, agenda setting resources and even more when they go against the current mm. and preach alternative ideas like you do. Have you experienced sexism, racism in your endeavors and has it been a barrier for the promotion of your ideas? 
Yes, I have experienced sexism and racism. I would say I've mostly used it as fuel to keep pushing my ideas. I think a lot of my work in degrowth is admittedly coming from a place of anger. So here I am talking about negative emotions again. anger at I guess the current system at the way things currently work in businesses and so often when I come up against instances of sexual discrimination or or racism I think what happens is I often well sometimes I realize with me I don't I tend to not notice them in the moment because I'm often so focused on on the message that I'm trying to promote and on the the ideas I'm trying to share and the change I'm hoping to create to, to contribute to in some small way that I don't notice that I'm experiencing it in the moment and it's often later on in reflection I look back at the moment in time I thought oh that was quite sexist or oh I want it seems a bit racist but in the moment it doesn't seem to and that's probably just my experience to to, to stop me if anything it probably fuels me because then I get angry <laughs> and I want to do more and, and, and keep pushing this this agenda so I'd like to talk about ecofeminism so mm-hmm. ecofeminism is based on the theory that the oppression of women and the oppression of nature nature are fundamentally linked. Is it an approach that resonates with you? We speak about nature in very traditionally feminine ways. I mean, we talk about mother nature. And I think that that's probably true across many of the world's civilizations. Uh, we talk about Gaia, sort of a female word for nature. Historically, our civilizations have evolved with nature as giver of life. And we draw this parallel between nature as giver of life and woman as also givers of life for obvious reasons bringing children into the world i think that this operationalization of nature as perhaps female and the juxtaposing of nature with feminism it does resonate with me but it probably because i am i am a woman and um, having also given birth myself i see many parallels and i i do relate to that um that conceptualization uh, that the very female conceptualization of nature and i embrace it How do you feel women can gain more influence in those matters? Just going through politics, being more out there, trying to get to those leading positions. But it seems that there's still that ceiling. There is still a glass ceiling. In in sort of the typical institutional environments, uh, the glass ceiling, I think, uh, still very much uh, exists. We're working on it and it is getting better, so I acknowledge that. And you're right, the people that make the decisions are located in these top positions. So if women who are pushing for change, female activists, want to progress, they need to find ways of shattering that glass ceiling or find ways around and over it. I always think of the fact that we need women to support women. I think by amplifying each other's voices, I mean, the fact that you invited me to do this interview even is a, a, is a good way of doing it as well, right? That we sort of say, I heard a great, great idea from a woman somewhere. And if there's a way that you can then amplify that message and share it, then we're, we're, also, we're also helping to get our voices and our ideas heard and elevated um, as well. So I think we need to support each other on a very personal personal level that that is something that I that's very important to me I went to a reveal I went to an all-girls um, high school in Trinidad and Tobago it's called Bishop Anstey High School and we pride ourselves on being feminists and the mantra has always been that we support each other 
we all consider ourselves, you know, strong women, whatever that means. But that we support each other. You look after each other. You are essentially your sister's keeper. I think there's a lot to be learned from the so-called less developed global South countries around community and perhaps the way community works. That my family is not really just my biological family. My family is or everyone else in my community, in my society, and we look after each other. And that's one of the things I learned, you know, back in high school. And it's one of the things as girls in this very feminist high school setting that resonates with us, that our fam that we are a family of young women. And so that idea that women need to support each other, elevate each other, amplify each other's ideas, I think is a really, really important one. It might sound theoretical, but I think it's quite tangible. I think it's something we can do by, for example, doing this interview. It's something we can do in boardrooms, amplifying each other's ideas and supporting it. It's something we can do in our homes with our daughters and our sisters. Uh, we do it when we meet our girlfriends for coffee. It's we got to support each other. And that is one of, for me, uh, something that, that that's quite important. And that I, I try to also to do in my everyday life. It seems to be something that men are more likely to do. Yes. Like uh, support each other support no each matter other. what. Um, and, and I think we are also as women are tend to be our own worst enemies. I'm sure you've heard of imposter syndrome. For example, we can be extremely skilled, competent and we still, I mean, I still struggle with imposter syndrome every day. Sometimes I feel like, you know, am I good enough? Am I doing this well enough? And I think it takes other women saying, yes, you are you're doing a wonderful job because I, I feel like men do it. They're very good at giving each other that pat on the back and saying, hey, good job, mate. That brotherhood, perhaps even that boys club, I've experienced quite a bit of what we call this boys club um, also in, in, in my life so far, is, is actually quite effective at helping them elevate and support each other. And I think we need, it's time for a girls club. I've read lately a lot of articles on climate despair. Do you have days when you feel there's no hope, we're yes. doomed? And if so, what, what do you do to get your motivation back and keep fighting, keep promoting your ideas? My son keeps me optimistic. Kids are so amazing. So I do have days and I'm down. I'm like, there's no hope. We're going to die. <laughs> the planet is dying. Social inequity is rampant. There's nothing we can do to fix it. The leaders won't listen. And then I have moments with my son who is extremely environmentally aware. He's almost five years old. He'll say something very just out, you know, out of the blue at random. And he'll say something like, mommy, are we destroying the coral reefs? And I'll say, yes, it seems so. That's what the science is saying we are. And he says, we're throwing too much of our rubbish in the ocean. Yes, we are. And he'd say something like, we'll fix it. And he does this very often. I find, at first I found it very strange, but now I find it very motivating because he, it starts always with this negative, oh, we're destroying the coral reefs, or there are too many cars on the road, we're polluting the atmosphere. He really does mention these things. But he always ends with a positive, we'll fix it. So I think he plays a very big role in keeping me motivated, keeping my eyes on the prize. I draw great inspiration honestly, from the next generation um, and have great hope. I know we don't have time and something needs to be done now. It needs to happen quite quickly. But I'm quite inspired by the young people I see. Like my son, who's quite young. He's almost five. I'm hoping we can 
get this sorted by the time he's old enough. But I mean, even young people, six teenagers, 16 years old, even the 20-something-year-olds in my classroom inspire me. I look at... In my classroom, I teach a fundamental, basic introduction to management course. It is as business as business can get in that classroom in terms of the content that we teach. But my students don't want business as usual. These students really genuinely recognize and feel this sense of urgency. And they want more. They want to learn how businesses can help. They want to know about social enterprise. And I was speaking to a colleague uh, recently and she said, you know, most of her students say they want to work for NGOs. They're not leaving business schools with the typical mindset that we had years ago where they all want to work for the big corporation and move up the ladder. They want to genuinely want to make a difference. So I think those things really inspire me genuinely. And on the days when I'm down, hopefully I have a lecture and I can meet some of them or my son otherwise keeps me humble and steers me back on track. We talked a little bit of the importance of taking individual actions as well as mm -hmm. influencing and changing the system. At your level, mm -hmm. is there some things that you do in the way that you, you shop, in the way you live, that you've tweaked and uh, that you can recommend to our listeners? I've made little changes, but honestly, I feel like I'm a hypocrite in many ways. And many of us are hypocrites. If you've seen that movie 2040, yeah, um, the narrator says, um, I haven't finished watching it either, but the narrator says, um, it's impossible for us all to be hypocrites because the system is the way it is. So I've done little things. I try to buy organic. I try to go to the markets to shop for the fresh fruit and vegetables um, rather than the supermarkets many times. I do scold sometimes the uh, people at the supermarket when they insist on packaging some produce in layers and layers of plastic. I have to say before the plastic ban, I was <laughs> I, I phased out those plastic bags um, and other elements of plastic from my life well before that. I do try to not to drive as often. It's quite difficult, I have to admit, but um, Um, to take the bus more often to work and to commute. I try to. Sp I love spending time in nature and, and, and instill that in my son as well. So we're trying to reduce our footprint in terms of transportation. Definitely use plastic um, is a big problem. I use glass containers mostly. So um, when my son has his lunches, we use glass. Little things. Uh, oh, I also, I also, I get complimented all the time that I'm always well-dressed. I would like to share my secret. Not all, but a lot of my clothes I actually buy from secondhand shops from the That's a good way you to... get actually really great, quite fashionable clothing from the secondhand shops. There's this article published in The Guardian that I would like you to comment on. It was called The Man-Made Antarctic Snowstorm Could Save Coastal Cities from Rising Seas. And basically, it was suggesting that by blowing trillions of tons of snow onto ice sheet could halt its collapse. What did you think of this uh, suggestion? What does it say? about the way we treat climate change. My first reaction was, can you imagine the scale of the problem that we are facing if scientists now think that the solution is to generate an entire full-blown snowstorm over the entire continent of Antarctica to solve the problem? That was the message I got. That, that That's what struck me. 
the scale, the sheer scale and severity of the problem that we're facing. There's a, there's another question which is around and we hear a lot of people who talk about capturing carbon mm. and that general idea that really technology will save us. What do you think of that approach? When? When is the technology going to save us? Technology, of course, has its many benefits and there will be a place most certainly for technology to help us solve some of the problems we now face. But those who study technological development know that it's it doesn't happen very quickly. There's a very long phase where things are in prototype and in development. And do we have the time to wait for these new technologies to go through all those different phases of innovation before they are fully ready for, as we say, market? I think the answer is no. There is, I think some technologies uh, will be necessary, some technological change and shift, but more fundamentally than technology is the paradigm shift, systemic shift, structural shift, the way we think and the way we organize our societies and our economies. Once we're able to do that, if we can really do that successfully, technology, technological solutions should hopefully come naturally. There's another article which was about the coming of the young ecologist Greta Thunberg that we already mentioned, and she was uh, addressing the French parliament. Mm. The French parliament has reacted, well, the individuals there have, have reacted in very different ways and mm. some very aggressively being condescendent basically and just criticizing how come a, such a young girl could tell us what to do they should be telling us what to do we've borrowed the planet from them people like Greta Thunberg are the ones who are going to live here when the current politicians are all have all passed on i mean they should be telling us what kind of world they want and they're telling us very clearly they're saying this is the world we want why aren't we helping them build it i think it's very sad and also really depressing that she was met with such negative response by members of the french parliament um it's a, it's a shame really no wonder the young people are angry no wonder they are tired and they are fed up because look at the responses of our leaders. I, I, and I In the article, I saw that they, they called her, for example, the Justin Bieber of ecology. And they, they, they say it in, you know, mean it to be an, an insult, actually. I was thinking about it and I was thinking, well, you know what? We even need the Justin Biebers of ecology. Yeah, it's like Bono. You know, we need Bono. I mean, yes, he there, he's probably just a, a figurehead. I don't say just. We need the figureheads. Probably the leader that mobilizes the people, but we need everyone. It's. I'm just, I'm really saddened that our young people who are so very clearly telling us what they want their world to look like, how they want us to redesign our societies and our economy. I'm, I'm really saddened that they're passion and their motivation, their activism is constantly, consistently being met. Actually, there's no better word for it than arrogance. What do you think it is ultimately? Do you think it is the fear for them, mostly white mm -hmm. aged men Yes, uh, to lose their position, their privilege? People don't like change. They're, they are losing their privilege. They're, this way of life 
capitalism i mean i think more and more people are coming to realize that it's problematic actually degrowth as a movement is growing um so people are realizing that it's problematic and so which means that the people who previously benefited from it yes in most cases they are the older white men the people who have benefited from it will be extremely uneasy and uncomfortable but such is the nature of change and we will have change one way or another with or without them hopefully with them but I think that she, I'm hopeful. I'm optimistic. Now I'm in a good space. I'm not <laughs> depressed anymore. Um, now I'm in a good space. I think we will have that change, hopefully sooner rather than later. Do you have a book, a film, a podcast, a cultural reference that you would like to share, which is linked to the subject of this podcast or not? It's coming from my son now, Planet Earth, the documentary, the new ones. It's amazing and extra and so inspiring. And we get I see how the changes we're making to the environment are impacting on individual ecosystems and habitats. That's my recommendation. Thank you, Cleanne, for this conversation. It was great to have you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Visit our website, gosimon.org, to find out more about our guest and all the references we have mentioned during our conversation. I also invite you to follow us on Twitter, Instagram or Facebook and leave us a comment, question or recommendation on who you would like to listen to next. The Climactic Collective. Collective.